Father in heaven, we truly praise you and thank you for the privilege of worship. It truly is a privilege, Lord. We can look back at our lives and we can remember times where we didn't even acknowledge your name. And you were merciful to us. You called us out of the darkness of our lives of sin into this marvelous light of Christ, our righteousness. And Father, we want to know more. There's more about Jesus that we would learn, more of his lovely face to behold. I pray that you would do something special today, that you would cause us to pass from death to life. That you will help us to hear your voice and that we will be able to hear not just yours, but the voice of Jesus and we will follow the lamb whithersoever he goes. Please abide with us in a very special way. I commit myself into your hands. I ask you to take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. May you grant us the presence of your Holy Spirit. And may we sense his power in this room as you minister unto our hearts. For this is our prayer that we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. for recording, then I'll use it. We're just going to get the uh, microphone set up. And as we prepare to do that, I would like to invite you, as much of you as are able, to please turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12. And I simply mean able, meaning that you got your Bibles with you. If you don't have your Bible with you, you're not able. But I hope that every single one of us has our Bibles with us, so that way we can turn to the book of Revelation the uh, 12th chapter, and we're just going to take a look at an old, old story. Revelation chapter 12, and we will start at a very familiar passage of Scripture, which is Revelation 12 and verse 7. And when you get there, just please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, the 12th chapter, starting at verse 7, it says something very strange took place, but it is true. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The Bible makes it clear that even though whenever I think of heaven, I know even as a child, as a non-believer, whenever I heard of heaven, I guarantee you I never thought of it as a place of war. That was the last thing that came to my mind. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't understand its structure, but I definitely thought of a place of peace, a place that was absent of warfare, a place that was absent of fighting in any of these things. But the Bible declares the truth. And the Bible says that there was an actual war that started in heaven. And it was between two characters. It between Michael and the dragon. Now, the Bible clearly identifies the dragon. It says it was none other than the devil and Satan. Michael would take a little bit of Bible study to prove it. But even in the very name Michael, you can find a lot. The name Michael in the Hebrew, Mike means one who is like. El means God. So, therefore, when you think of Michael, you're thinking of someone who is exactly like God. I remember one time I was studying with some uh, Muslim brethren, and as I was studying with them, they had a real serious problem with John 3.16. They said, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, because how can Jesus, the Christian, say be God, and yet the Bible says he was begotten? 
And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, in John 3, 16, you know the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten. Begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I said, well, maybe it's because you don't understand that word begotten. You see, I was talking to a Muslim man, which we generally think of the East, but this was a Muslim man in America. So he was thinking in a Western mindset. And when we hear the word begotten, we think of something brought forth or created. Is that right? That's what you think of when you think of the word begotten. And he was thinking in that same frame of thinking. But lo and behold, as I told him, I said, well, the Bible wasn't written in English. That's for sure. It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. And when you look at the New Testament, it's Greek. So I said, have you ever looked up the Greek word for begotten? And he said, well, no, I haven't. I said, well, you'd be amazed to know because there's two Greek words. One word is monogeneo, which means brought forth. And that's the kind of begotten that we're thinking about. But then there's another word that was in John 3.16. And it was not monogeneo, this idea of bringing something forth or creating something. It was a Greek word, monogenes. And when you look up the Greek word monogenes, you know what it means? It means the only one like me. So when you look at John 3.16, it was actually saying, for God so loved the world that he gave the only one that was like him. That you should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when I think about that, that name Michael, one who is like God, and Jesus was the only one that was like God. So this is none other than a warfare between Satan and Christ. Christ and Satan are at warfare with each other. It was in heaven. And again, when we think of heaven, we don't think of a place of fighting, but there was one that took place there. And it was not with jabs and punches and kicks, but brothers and sisters, it was with ideologies and concepts. It was individuals trying to see who is supreme, who really is God, who really is worthy of worship. This is what was taking place in heaven. And thank God the Bible says that Satan lost that battle. The Bible clearly says that he lost that battle. He prevailed not, the Bible says, and he was cast out. But the Bible says he landed somewhere, didn't he? The Bible says he was cast out and he landed on earth. And I want you to understand the war was between Christ and Satan in heaven and the war continues between Christ and Satan. There's only one difference. And I want you to see that difference in the book of Revelation 12 still, but I want you to look at verse 12. You see, it's in Revelation 12 and verse 12 that the Bible continues to tell us more about the story. It says, therefore, rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, because the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. Somehow, some way, you and I now are caught in the middle of this war. So now the great controversy took a bit of a shift. It was initially just between Christ and Satan, but now it's between Christ and Satan over man. That was the shift in the war. But Satan's goal is still to affect and hurt Christ. And the question is, why does he pick on us? I mean, listen, I, I, I grew up in a public school system. I don't advocate it. But I'm just telling you the truth. I grew up in a public school system and in the public school system, there was lots and lots of fights. I mean, lots of fights. I got into so many fights, brothers and sisters, that once I got over two or three hundred, I just stopped counting. And one of the things I remember about the fighting that took place in school was a lot of fights would start when you didn't even do anything. It was kind of like somebody would just walk up to you and just because they don't like the way you look. Maybe they didn't like the color of your skin. It could be for anything. And they would come and pick a fight with you. And those were some of the worst fights because there's nothing like getting into a fight and you can look in your mind and say, what did I do? I didn't even do anything. The Bible says that when Satan landed on this planet, he decided to pick a fight with humanity. Humanity was not looking to get into a fight with Satan, but Satan was looking to get into a fight with humanity. 
And the question is, why? Why did he come to start and pick this fight with you and I? And I believe the Bible helps give us some clues that we're going to find is going to be more than a clue, but the clear answer as we progress in our study. Go to the book of Zechariah chapter 2. In Zechariah, the second chapter, the Bible does give us a clue. It helps us get at least a slight idea to understand why, why did Satan want to pick this fight with humanity? And I want you to see what the Bible says. The Bible says in Zechariah chapter 2, and I want you to see what it says as we consider verse 8. The Bible says in Zechariah, the second chapter and the eighth verse, and if you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Zechariah 2 and verse 8, it says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations, which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. The Bible lets us know that he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Can you imagine that God says, when I think of humanity, when I think of these wonderful people that I have made in my image and my likeness, that the devil sought to pervert, to make us and cause us to be in existence in another image and another likeness. God says it was these very people that was like the apple of my eye. They were the twinkle, the spark in my eye. And brothers and sisters, being the father of four, often fathers have a tendency to say that their children are the twinkle of their eye. And so it is that we were that wonderful twinkle, apple, that wonderful spark in the eyes of God. God loved us, brothers and sisters, and this merited Satan's hatred. And therefore, he said, I'm going to continue the war between himself and Christ. But now you and I are involved. And last I checked, when you're in a war, you have you should have at least only one mindset. And that is to win because losing is not an option, is it? Brothers and sisters, don't entertain losing. Do not sit down and parlay with the ideologies of losing. You will understand, brothers and sisters, that it's a very amazing thing, but actions have a tendency to follow what goes on in the mind. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his mind, so is he in his character. If you think yourself a loser, that's how your life is going to be paved out for you. So you have to think yourself a winner, but it's going to take more than just thinking yourself a winner. You're going to have to learn how to fight the good fight. And so it is that the Bible lets us know a reality that took place. You see, Satan came and he began to work upon the first human beings to walk on this planet, Adam and Eve. And as he began to press upon Adam and Eve, false theories and false concepts and ideologies appealing to the senses of humanity, the Bible says something took place as a result of it. It brought something called sin into this world. And Satan knew the effect of it because the Bible tells us right here. It tells us very clearly. It says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Brothers and sisters, Satan's whole game plan was summed up in one point. Get the people to fall into sin. Why? Because he understood that sin separates man from God. He understood it clear as day. He knows that the heart of Christ is built on the fact that he was going to have communion with his creation. Satan was bent on the fact to break that communion by any means necessary. And as a result of this, he brought not only Adam and Eve, but brothers and sisters, we can look back at our own lives and we can all see that we have fell for his trap as well. And all of us can look back at our lives and we can see that we literally chose to sin against God, even though the reality was it separated us from him. And brothers and sisters, we don't understand. You see, it is amazing how we can talk to humanity today. And when you talk to human beings today, you can say, don't you know that sin separates us from God? And do you know a lot of human beings either say or demonstrate actions of I don't care. 
And the reason why is because most human beings have lived most of their lives separated from God. So it doesn't hurt us really when we think about the fact that sin separates us from God. But the question is not so much how does it affect you? The question is how did it affect God? That's a question that's often not considered. Often when we think of sin, we think about woe is me. We think about, oh man, my life is messed up. Sickness, disease, sadness, poverty, and all these other problems in the world. We think about ourselves, but brothers and sisters, the question is, how does sin affect God? And while it was not much on our mind, this thought, it was paramount on the mind of Satan. You see, you and I need to understand this warfare more clearly. When he tempts you and I to get sin, get into sin, we don't really understand what's taking place. You see, go to the book of Isaiah 63. Let me show you. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, the 63rd chapter, watch the text. You see, in Isaiah, the 63rd chapter, the Bible brings something out that you and I would do well, well, well to consider, brothers and sisters. And I want you to catch it carefully now. In Isaiah, the 63rd chapter, and if you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Isaiah 63, considering verse 8 and 9, it says in Isaiah 63, 8 and 9, for he said, surely they are my people that will not lie. So he was their what? Savior. This is talking about God himself. And then watch verse 9. It says in all their affliction, talking about the people who was afflicted. It says God was afflicted. He was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. You see, Satan functions like what many of us understand the mafia functions like. You see, when you think of the mafia and all these horrific type of gang type movements, these are individuals that they always have a target. And when they aim at their target, if they can't get their target, they have another modus operandi. That next motive is if we can't get them, get those whom they love. Satan knows that the war took a hit in heaven and he was kicked out. But the war continues between Christ and Satan It's that you and I have gotten caught in the middle. So whenever Satan really gets you and I to fall into sin, did you know he's not really satisfied just because you and I fell? That's not where his satisfaction is. We don't understand that Satan has a satisfaction, but we don't understand his greatest satisfaction. We just read it in the verse. You see, the Bible shows that every time that we sin, every time we are afflicted with sin, it does not just hurt us. It hurts God. And that was Satan's target all along because the war continues on earth between Christ and Satan. It is because of this that inspiration tells us very clearly in Councils on Stewardship 136, it says the only satisfaction Satan takes in playing the game of life for the souls of men is the satisfaction he takes in hurting the heart of Christ. That's all he cares about. You and I are just a, a punzi. We're just a little piece in the puzzle. What he does is every time he gets us to fall into sin, it is as if he takes his foot and puts it over our back in triumph when we fall on our faces and he looks Jesus in his face and he says, look at what I've done to another one of your people you died for. He rubs it in, brothers and sisters. It's like putting salt to the wound. It is as if, brothers and sisters, he is going to Christ and saying, every time I get your people the ones you died for every time I get them to fall into sin. He says, what you going to do about it now? Was it worth it? And he looks them in the eyes, brothers and sisters. That's all he cares about. You and I are just a commodity. We're just part of the package. His aim is to break the heart of God. And brothers and sisters, 
I want to stop causing God pain. Have you gotten to that place yet? Because there's more that is suffering than you when we choose to do what we want, when we want, how we want. There's much more suffering. It breaks the heart of Jesus. It breaks the heart of our Heavenly Father. And this is God. God wants to put an end to pain. The plan of salvation is a plan to put an end to pain. Man's and God's. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we have to capture a broader view. We have to understand that God wants to do something very, very powerful. This is why, brothers and sisters, there's a need for victory over sin. Victory over sin is not a doctrine that is like an a la carte product that's on a table that you can pick or not pick and still be all right. Brothers and sisters, victory over sin is mandatory. Because, brothers and sisters, as long as we keep sinning, the pain continues, not just for man, but also for God. It is for this reason that I believe studying about victory over sin, studying about God's plan to help us and enable us to get to a point that we can stop the pain. This should be something that is paramount in the mind of the children of God. But you know that God also tells us to watch motives. God wants us to be very careful with motives because it is possible to want to accomplish something that God wants to accomplish, but to do it with a bad motive. It's kind of like a Bible worker that goes out to do Bible studies with people. They win souls to Christ, which is a good work, but they can have a bad motive. Like they do it so that they can be recognized by the church so that they can be given a raise so that they can go from one little church and go to a larger church and be hired. People can do all sorts of good work with bad motives. And God understands that. And that's why having simply the experience of victory over sin or the goal of entering into that experience is not enough. We have to understand that while this is definitely the goal, victory over sin, the ceasing and the ending of the pain of both God and man, while this definitely should be the goal, we have to understand that we need to pursue the goal with a right motive. And the reason this is important is because we know what sin is. The Bible tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 4 what sin is. It says sin is the breaking of God's law, God's commandments. Somebody says, what commandments? Paul answers it. In Romans 7 and verse 7, he says, well, I had not known sin except by the law. I had not known sin except the law had said thou shalt. I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. Well, there's only one commandment that says thou shalt not covet in all the Bible. And that's in Exodus 20, verse 17, the very 10th commandment. So it's the breaking of the Ten Commandments that brings forth sin. God wants to bring us into an experience where we have victory over sin, which means we keep his commandments. But the only way it can happen is it must be based on the right motive. And what is that motive? John 14. So why don't we turn there? In John, the 14th chapter, the Bible makes it clear of how this can be accomplished, but it must be based on the right motive. Motive is very important with God. It should be very important to God's people. The Bible says in John, the 14th chapter, exactly what that motive should be that ultimately will enable us to have victory over sin. The Bible says in John, the 14th chapter, and if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. Amen. The Bible says in John 14, 15, in very, very plain language, Jesus says, if you what? He says, if you love me, what should be the fruit? Keep my Commandments, Brothers and sisters, the only way you and I can have victory over sin 
And the only way it could ever be accomplished is when you and I develop a love for Christ that's stronger than life. And it's only until this happens. Like I told you earlier, it's possible to be a church member, but not be a Christian. It is possible, brothers and sisters, we can be church members in good and regular standing, but heaven's books does not recognize us as children of the most high God. And therefore, while I definitely want to be a church member in good and regular standing, it should be a natural fruit that comes from being a Christian. But it's possible to be a good, faithful, church attending individual and not be recognized of heaven as a child of God. And guess what? You can't tell God you're his child. He must tell you. Did you hear what I just said? You can't tell God you're his child. You can't do that. God says, I know my own. God says, I know every single one who are mine. Christ has made that clear. So it's not for us to say, I know I'm a child of God. You can say, you know what, all you want. It's important for God to be able to say, do I recognize you as my child? That's imperative. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that we need the experience of victory over sin. That's definitely a reality. But at the same time, we must understand there's only one thing that could bring it. And it is once we learn to love that man by the name of Jesus and to know what love really is. This is why when we understand this, we have to understand this beautiful quote from Desire of Ages 480, paragraph three. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. You can't let any other motive drive you to have an experience of victory over sin in Jesus Christ except one thing. It can't be the fear of punishment. It doesn't work. It can't be the hope of reward. It doesn't work. It makes it clear. They behold the Savior's matchless what? Love revealed throughout his pilgrimage on earth from the manger of Bethlehem to Calvary's cross and the sight of him attracts. Has Jesus attracted you yet? Have you gotten to a chance that when you behold him, he is all together lovely? It says the sight of him attracts. It softens and subdues the soul. You know, brothers and sisters, I know for a fact that there was a time in my life that I was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the everlasting gospel. And I can be very honest with you that I can recognize that I was not a child of God for a long period of time. You want to know why I know that? Because I could be a very hard man. I could be hard. You know, you mess up, you do something wrong. I'm ready to crack a whip on you. I'm ready to let you know how you messed up. You messed up again. You did it wrong. And I'm ready to put sometimes the most severest punishment upon you. Brothers and sisters, I remember this spirit. I remember it too well. I remember it too well. We used to roll real tight, me and Satan, but I'm glad that brother's cut off. Amen. You have to understand, brothers and sisters, some of us, we are hard people. We know how to be nice when you're nice. We know how to be cool when you're cool. But as soon as you get on my nerves, I do not have a problem letting you know. And I can lose my spirit of Christ real quick. And that testifies that there's a disconnect between myself and the Savior. Why? Notice the quote again. It says, they behold the Savior's matchless love revealed throughout his pilgrimage on earth from the manger of Bethlehem to Calvary's cross and the sight of him attracts it softens last I checked soft is the opposite of hard if I still got a hard rough heart demeanor and character then that means that Christ's love has not accomplished its work yet it says it softens and subdues the soul. It says love awakens. I love that, brothers and sisters. It's, it's a miraculous statement. 
Love awakens. Christ takes full responsibility for what is produced in our heart. This is none other than Romans 5 verse 5. When the Bible tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a beautiful miracle. It says love awakens in the heart of the beholders. They hear his voice and they follow him. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ wants. This is what must be produced. It's not enough to just be a bunch of good rule following people. There has to be a motive. That's the foundation of it. And if that motive's not right, you're not right. I'm not right. And this is something that we all have to do some heart searching. I'm so glad for Gospel Workers, page 100. I hope you are. It tells us very clearly that we are to do something very special. It tells us that we are to guard jealously. Your hours for prayer, the searching of the scriptures, and the examination of your heart. Now, some of us are good prayer people. Some of us are some good prayer Bible study people. But brothers and sisters, you got to be threefold. You got to have some time for prayer. You got to have some time for searching the scriptures. And you must set some time to examine your heart. This is what Christ did. He'd go out and commune with nature and with God and with his own heart. And he would spend that time in nature and he would let the Lord reveal some things to him. This is Psalms 139, 23 and 24, when the Bible tells us so clearly that it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And once it's identified, the close of the prayer is lead me in the way of everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, that's what Christ needs to accomplish in you and me. He's not looking for a bunch of hardcore SDAs. He's looking for Christians. He's looking for people that reflect the lovely image right. And this is what Christ wants. So when we think of victory over sin, brothers and sisters, it's an imperative experience. We must have it. It does stop the pain. The fruits are beautiful, but it must be based on the right motive. And this is why we're on that journey called the plan of salvation, aren't we? That's why we're on it. So when you think of victory over sin, we can look at it in twofold. And I believe that victory over sin, as, as, as necessary as this experience is, it does need to be qualified. Because there are some ideologies when we think of victory over sin that might be a bit twisted. So what we want to do is we want to look at it. When we think of victory over sin, I'm going to simplify it into two paths. Watch this. When I think of the first path, I'm thinking of prohibitions. When you think of victory over sin, there are prohibitions. Things that God says, do not do this. Prohibitions. But when you think of victory over sin, there's something else. It's also called a call to action. So when you think of victory over sin, victory over sin is broken down into two paths. The first path, we call it prohibitions. But then the second path is a call to action. And we're going to see how the Bible shows both. Because Christ wants to bring us into victory over sin. There's no doubt about that. That's what stops the pain. But at the same time, we have to really take a look at what really is victory over sin and how is it experienced. So when we think of sin, we have to understand it's compassed of or uh, continues of prohibitions, but also a call to action. Now watch this. When we think of prohibition, prohibitions, we think of Isaiah 1 and verse 16. So let's turn there. I was looking for a verse. How can I get a verse that just summarizes it all? And this is a good one. Isaiah 1 and verse 16. In Isaiah 1 and verse 16, I mean, it really just kind of summarizes the whole ideology behind prohibitions. 
because God only tells us to do not do things that are bad or evil. So notice how the Bible spells it out in Isaiah 1 and verse 16. The Bible says in Isaiah 1 and verse 16, it says, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes cease to do evil. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of things the Bible calls evil. And, you know, Nehemiah 13, 15 through 18, it says Sabbath breaking is evil. That's the reason why God calls us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, right? We know that adultery is evil. We know that lying is evil. We know that an evil tongue, a surmising tongue, a gossiping tongue is evil. There are many things that the Bible calls evil. And therefore, what we do is we look through the scripture to understand God's prohibitions. The thou shalt nots. Don't do this and don't do that. Why? Because it is not indicative of one who possesses the Holy Spirit. It is not indicative of one who is a child of God. How in the world can we say we're Christians and we're yelling at people and being mean and ungodly? How can we say that losing our tempers? How can we call ourselves children of God? How can we say we're children of God if we're still cussing and swearing? How can we say we're children of God if we're still practicing fornication? The Bible is clear. These things are what the Bible calls evil. And God says, put these things away from your life. If you are connected to me, Christ says, these things don't please me. And you know something I learned that makes it kind of easy, or easier at least? I've learned this. In the Bible, God often refers to himself as a husband. And he refers to his church as a wife. You remember that you look in uh, Ephesians 5 when the Bible talks about why husband loves your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives reverence your husband as the church is to reverence Christ, etc. Well, if you look at Ephesians 5.32, the Bible says, I show you a great mystery. But all of these counsels that I'm giving on husband and wife, he says, all of this, I'm really speaking about Christ and the church. So literally, marriage was supposed to be a pictorial of the relationship between earth and heaven. I wonder how many of our homes look like heaven. And so it is that when we think about that, I've learned something as a man who's been married 17 years, May 25th, 2015, will make 18. Now, here's one thing that I did learn in my short little 18, uh, potential 18 years of marriage. Here's one thing I did learn. When I consider my bride, one of the things I like to do is understand what pleases her. And then what pleases her are the things that as long as, of course, it doesn't violate God's word, I make sure that I get it done. Come on, brothers. That one, one amen, brothers. Come on, brothers. That was your opportunity. Amen. I said, you know, I want to find out what pleases my wife. Because that's what a man who is in love with his bride does. But brothers and sisters, when I discover something, that does not please my wife. And I can see that whatever doesn't please her, I can also see God is in agreement as well. I can say, you know what? Then if this does not please you, I don't want to do it because I've pledged my life to be with you to please you. And then love for my bride becomes my motivation to avoid the things that displeases her. And it works. You see, when we look at the Bible... There are a lot of things that do not please our heavenly husband. There's lots of things that don't please him. But the problem is you will never give up anything truly from your heart for a man you don't love. That's why it takes more than just telling young people stop sinning. We have to show them how to love God. If they learn how to love God, 
Victory over sin is much, much easier. But it's hard to not do things you love to do for a person you don't love. And we all know that as human beings in this room. So therefore, God makes it clear. He says, listen, victory over sin, definitely possible, definitely can take place. But love has to be that foundation. So even when we look at the prohibitions, we must avoid evil. Bad music, got to go. Bad dress, got to go. Bad diet, got to go. Bad worship, got to go. All of these things, got to go. That's not the issue. The issue is not that we need less dress reform. We need more. The issue is not that we need less health reform. We need more. It's not that we need less Sabbath reform or less education reform or any other reforms. We need more, brothers and sisters, because apostate movements are consistently trying to penetrate God's remnant. So we need more. Believe that. But brothers and sisters, there's more to life than avoiding sin. There's more to life than just avoiding evil. You can't just cut off, cut off, cut off, cut off, cut off. You got to learn to cut on. Did you catch that? Well, this would be the right time to go to our next point then, isn't it? So therefore, when we think of victory over sin, we're thinking about the prohibitions, avoiding evil. No question about it. We need to avoid evil. We just need the right motive that gives us power. But there's another one. There's another thing called sin that God wants to give us victory over. Therefore, victory over sin is not just avoiding evil, but it's also a call to action. What actions? You know what those actions are? Self-sacrificial service. Go to the book of Isaiah 58. In Isaiah, the 58th chapter, notice what the Bible says. You see, believe it or not, another aspect of victory over sin is not just avoiding evil. Some of us think we have accomplished our job just because we don't listen to perverted hip-hop jazz anymore or jazz gospel, hip-hop gospel, reggae gospel. Because we got rid of our rock and roll gospel, because we went from short skirts to long skirts, because of the fact that we no longer eat the flesh pots of Egypt but now we eat whole food, plant-based diet, many of us think, well, the mission is accomplished. We got out of the city into the country. Now, brothers and sisters, in my home, we eat a whole food plant-based diet. Amen. In my home, there's no such thing as short skirts. My home is in the country. In other words, we have the elements. But what I'm telling you is, is that these things are fruits of righteousness. They're not the root of righteousness. And don't ever get that twisted, brothers and sisters. These things don't save us. They don't make us holy. They simply indicate that we're connected to the Holy One. So therefore, we cannot make this our religion. But I'll tell you what really proves. You see, when you think of the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That means we're claiming to be true worshipers. Second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Do not bow down to these idols. Don't worship them. Well, that testifies that we hate what God hates. God hates idolatry. We hate idolatry. Commandment number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That means we are professing to be Christians, Christ-like people. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, right? That means that we are professing to be holy people, sanctified people. But the question is, how do you really know? How do you really know that these are true worshipers? How do you really know they hate what God hates? How do you really know that they are ones who demonstrate the character of Christ? How do you really know that these people are holy and sanctified? You know how you know? When they start honoring their fathers and their mothers. Yeah. 
when they will not kill in any form, when they will not commit adultery, even with looking and lusting, when they will not steal even someone's affections through flirting, when they will not bear a false witness against their neighbor, which means they absolutely love speaking truth. And when they will not covet, which means they demonstrate a contentment with whatever they have. And they are Philippian 411 type people in whatsoever state they're in. They have learned therewith to be content. Brothers and sisters, my point is simple. The last six commandments proves if you're really keeping the four. Oh, did you catch that? The last six commandments is an evidence if those first four are really real. God knew that. Isaiah 58. If you're in Isaiah 58, please say amen. Well, the Bible tells us very clearly. It talks about a true fast. It talks about a beautiful fast, actually. Oh, I wish we could learn this fast more often. The Bible says in Isaiah 58, Sister Vonay, I don't even know if she uh, saw that. I said, I, you know, as soon as she gave her testimony, I said, does she realize she just experienced Isaiah 58? Look at what that says in Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, look at what it says in verses 6 through 8. The Bible says, oh, you can look at 6 through 12, but let's watch, watch verse 8 carefully just to my sister Vonay's point. It says, is not this the fast that I've chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that ye break every yoke? It's not talking about just you. This is talking about what you do for others. It says, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house when thou seest the naked that thou cover him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? And what would happen if somebody did this? What's that first word in verse eight? <laughs> then this means as a result, it says, then sister Vonay, it says, then shall thy light break forth as the morning and thine health shall spring forth speedily. My sister forgot herself. She said, there's someone who I love. She's called my mother. She said, there's somebody that I love and she is my mother. And she says, I'm ill and I'm feeling weak. But you know what? My mother feels weaker. And therefore, whatever rays of energy I have, I will exert it for Christ's sake. And I will manifest it to my mother whom I love. And God said, dear child, don't you understand what you were doing? God says, when you did that, God says, I'm going to allow your health to spring forth speedily. Amen. That's what came to my mind when you gave that blessed testimony. But it goes on. It says, then shall thy light break forth as the morning and then thine health shall spring forth speedily and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re reward. Then shalt thou call and the Lord shall answer. Some of our prayers are not being answered because we're selfish, self-centered and consumed with ourselves. Listen to me, saints. Some of us, why are my prayers not answered? Why is it? Why is it? I avoid every evil. I don't listen to bad music. I don't dress bad. I don't eat any foul diet. I don't do any of those things. But the problem is you don't serve. How could Christ be in you when the Bible says in Acts 10, 38, that he went about doing good? If Christ is in me, then the life he lives should be the life I live. And if I'm living his life, then that means that my life is a life. Not some contribution you give on a Sabbath here or there. My life is a life of going about doing good. And the Bible says that if you dare do this, the Bible says that. Did you see it? Verse nine. Then shalt thou call and the Lord shall answer. Some of our prayers are not being heard because we're self-centered. 
And you know what self-centeredness is? Sin. And we're talking about victory over sin. Victory over sin is more than just the prohibitions. It's a call to action. It's a call to a life of self-sacrificial service, brothers and sisters. That's real victory over sin. We can go on with the verses here, but you get the point. Brothers and sisters, this is what victory over sin really is. This is what Christ, he wants to bring this to each and every one of us. And he can. He can. He can. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So victory over sin. Remember, victory over sin stops the pain. We want to stop the pain. We got to cooperate with God. And God says victory over sin is definitely contributive of prohibitions. You got to avoid the evils, but you also have to respond to the call of action. When you look at Matthew 25, 31 to 46, that's just Jesus spelling it out. You see, it was it was only when I understood this that it made sense now, because why are people going to hell's fire just because they didn't visit people in prison? I didn't understand that for a while. I'm like, why does Jesus say, go, you cast, and you're going to be weeping and gnashing with teeth and all this other? He says that all in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. But then Jesus makes it clear. He says, because whatsoever you didn't do to them, you didn't do it to me, right? But we don't understand that the last six commandments, it has a very immediate application, but it also has, as Psalms 119.96 says, thy commandments are exceeding broad, We have to understand there's a lot of mothers and fathers out there that we need to also honor, especially those ones who are elderly. There's a lot of ways that we can commit adultery without even touching a person. Brothers and sisters, when we look at the broadness of God's commandments, we can see that the last six commandments is a call to action. It's a call to service. So when we don't serve and we say I'm too busy because I live way out in the sticks in New York and I can hardly pay my mortgage and therefore I just got to work, work, work and I have no time to do anything else. Brothers and sisters, that means you just need to go to God and you really need to change your circumstances. You need to go to God and say, look, this is not working. Because life was never meant for you to be so busy working and hustling that all you do is earn enough money to service debt. That's not even living, brothers and sisters. Sooner or later, you got to be a man or woman enough to say, look, my life is ridiculous right now. This makes no sense. Things have got to change. And God loves it when people get to that place. Because God does not lack for ideas. He does not lack for counsel. All you got to do is go to him. Don't you know he loves you? He wants you to be successful in every phase of life. And don't, don't, don't determine success by man's standards. I'm just saying true success is being able to do whatever God says. Amen. Is that simple enough? Amen. That's what he wants for every single one of us. So therefore, victory over sin is definitely possible. But the question is, how? Because when we look at our lives, some of us are not avoiding evil. We're embracing it. Some of us, we are not doing self-sacrificial service. Our lives are self-consumed. So the question is, well, then how can I get victory over sin? And I believe the Bible has an answer. It's almost super simple, but it gets deeper. First Corinthians chapter 15. Observe the text in first Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Notice what the Bible says. First Corinthians, we're looking at chapter 15 now. And I want you to see what the Bible tells us as we consider this ideology of victory over sin, which is possible. Thank you, Jesus. It's just that we have to understand it. So now notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in first Corinthians 15 and we're looking at verse 57. And if you're there, say amen. Amen. 
The Bible's clear. It tells us how we can get victory over sin in a broad sense, and then we'll make it more succinct. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, it says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory, but it comes through who? It comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over sin cannot be done by planning and conjuring up ideas and brainstorming and just willpower. That is not how victory over sin comes. Christ must be first, middle, last, top, bottom, best in all of the ideas, concepts, and pursuits of life that we're going to make to try to make sure that we can experience what he wants us to experience. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what that means then is that victory over sin is possible, but we can only get it through Christ. Which means that if we go to Jesus, then he will somehow teach us, enable us, and empower us, and show us how we can have the victory through him. But the reality is this. It's possible to go look for Jesus and not find him because you don't know where he is. And the reason why I say this point is because we can just ask Mary Magdalene as an example. Go to John 20. Mary had that issue. And if Mary had that issue, why can't you have that issue? There are people all over the world, I believe, that has this issue. They're looking for Jesus, the solution, but they don't exactly know where to find him. And let me show you what I mean. John, the 20th chapter. Is it all right if we study? Is that okay? Going text by text, making sure we know what we believe. Amen. All right. John 20. So we're in John, the 20th chapter. Watch the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear. In John, the 20th chapter, the Bible spells it out beautifully in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says in John 20, 1 and 2, it says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. You see, Mary came looking for Jesus. She came looking for Jesus, and when she came looking for him, she couldn't find him, and she says, I don't even know where he is. Do you know that's what the world is going through right now? Do you know that that's why God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church? The world at large right now is looking for Jesus, at least in solution form. You know, with Jesus, there's peace. With Jesus, there's love. With Jesus, there's hope. With Jesus, there's every good virtue that the human mind can imagine. So there are people that's looking for Christ, but the problem is they don't know where to find him. Then you have religious people that are doing the same, just like Mary. Mary was a religious person. She came to where she understood Christ to be, but when she got there, he wasn't there. Brothers and sisters, did you know that Seventh-day Adventists know where Jesus is? And do you know that as a result of the fact that we know where Jesus is, God holds us double responsible for every individual that goes in their graves not knowing where Christ was. That's why call to service is so important. We have the answer. You see, the Bible tells us the answer. You know, it's very simple. The Bible tells us a wonderful statement that Jesus said a long time ago. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Christ referred to him as the way of salvation, the one that is the bridge that brings mankind back to God. But when we consider this more deeply, we know the Bible also says, thy way, O God, is where? It's in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So God says there's a people on earth that knows how to point man to where Christ is. 
That's imperative, brothers and sisters. You got to know where Christ is so you can get the people connected. And this becomes a very, very serious situation for you and I. We have to understand where Christ is so we can know how to get to him, but then we can help others know how to get to him. So if we really want victory over sin, understanding it in the broader sense of which we studied thus far, we have to go to Jesus because God said, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the source, so we got to go to him. But we have to go to him where he is. And Christ right now, we know he is in the sanctuary. But brothers and sisters, simply knowing where Christ is, is that enough? That's certainly not enough, is it? I wish it was that simple, but it's not. Knowing where Christ is is important, but it's definitely not enough. It is for this reason that point number one is we can only get victory over sin, which can stop the pain between God and man in this issue of the fight of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. But the only way it can happen is we got to go to Christ and we have to go to him where he is. If you understand what I'm saying thus far, let me hear you say amen. amen. We are still in fairly appetizer phase of the message. The meat's coming. God wants us to understand it's the only way we can have this victory. The only way we can have true victory over sin is through Christ. Now, the Bible tells us, obviously, something very important for us to understand. I would imagine it would just be simply a repetition for those of us who at least named the name Seventh-day Adventist. And it's found in Daniel 8.14. Is it all right if we turn there in case there's somebody here that maybe never saw it before? Let's just turn there real quick. Daniel 8 and verse 14. And you'll see why this is important. Because the Bible makes it clear that Christ is in the sanctuary. But the Bible also helps us understand, well, there's different phases of the sanctuary. After all, in the sanctuary services, you have a, a holy place, you have a most holy place, and then you have a courtyard that gets you to there. And so it is that when you think of Christ, you think of Christ in the courtyard as represented by the lamb that's slain. You think of Christ in the holy place as the priest that mediates. You think of Christ in the most holy place as a high priest who judges. There are several works of Christ that we can see throughout the sanctuary services. But Daniel 8 and verse 14 helps us understand something that I think is very important. And the Bible says in Daniel 8 verse 14, of course, it was answering a question. And the question was, of course, wanting to know how long a certain prophetic utterance would take place. And the answer was given in verse 14. And he said unto me, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is a foundational text for Seventh-day Adventists as we seek to point people to Christ in the sanctuary. We want people to understand that the Bible says a time was going to come for the sanctuary to be cleansed. But what does that mean? Well, we would have to go to Leviticus 16 to get a little bit more magnification. So let's go to Leviticus 16 now. In Leviticus, the 16th chapter, the Bible just helps point it out just a little bit more. In Leviticus, the 16th chapter, there was something called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, a time in which God's people would have to undergo an investigative judgment and when they would undergo this investigative judgment, God was looking to see if his mission was accomplished in the hearts of his people. And once the mission was accomplished, God was able to cleanse the sanctuary. And I want you to watch this in Leviticus, the 16th chapter, starting at verse 16. If you're there, please say amen. amen. 
The Bible says in Leviticus 16 and verse 16, it says, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Going on, and there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and hollow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. What's being cleansed as we're studying Leviticus 16, 16 through 19? What's being cleansed? The sanctuary. Very good. The sanctuary, various parts. The sanctuary is being cleansed. But then look at verse 30. In verse 30, it also says, For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from how much? From all your sins. So what's being cleansed in verse 30? The people. Question, which one has to happen first? The cleansing of the people or the cleansing of the sanctuary? Okay, I heard a mixed answer. I heard people, I heard sanctuary. How many say sanctuary? How many people say people? How many say, I don't know? All right, fair answer. Why was the sanctuary dirty? Look back at verse 16. The answer was right there in like the first sentence of verse 16. It said in Leviticus 16, 16, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of something. Because of what? Because of the uncleanness of who? So why did the sanctuary get dirty? It was because of the people's sins. So what would have to be cleansed first? The people. And then once the people are clean, then the sanctuary can be cleansed. Are you following? Can't have a clean sanctuary until you have a clean people. And this was all done in the day of atonement, which was in a specific place. It was in a most or the most holy place. So when we think about our job, our job is that after that time period of Daniel 8, 14, there was going to be a shift, if you will. Christ was going to enter somewhere where he was going to begin doing a cleansing work, which was something that was done only on the day of atonement. And it was designed to clean the people that the sanctuary could be cleansed. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, October 22, 1844 is a special date for us, is it not? Special day. We believe that Jesus made a move in the heavenly sanctuary. And we believe that he left an area called the holy place and he moved into the most holy place. And he began a work of judgment that was designed to ultimately enable him and put him in a position that he could cleanse the sanctuary, which means he's first going to have to clean up his people. Very good. Revelation 10 brings this out in beautiful language. Go to Revelation 10, and I want you to look carefully at verse 7. In Revelation 10 and verse 7, it actually brings this point out in very, very beautiful language. And I want you to watch the text carefully. In Revelation, the 10th chapter, and when you get there, let me know by saying amen. 
Watch this now. The Revelation, the 10th chapter, it says something very, very beautiful. In Revelation, the 10th chapter, the Bible says in verse 7, it was after or as this time period came to an end that Christ moved into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. It's our job to point people there because that's where victory over sin can take place. Is that right? And victory over sin is what God wants because that's what's going to stop the pain. So watch this. So now the Bible says in Revelation 10 and verse 7, it says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, it says the mystery of God should be what? Finished. As he hath declared to his servants, the prophet. Now, I like something that uh, one of our pioneers, Jay and Andrews, stated. Jay and Andrews was a very, very powerful uh, individual in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the times of our pioneers. And he says something very strong in his book, The Judgment, uh, Its Events and Their Order. And I want you to see what he said here. He made a statement that says it is not stated. He was talking about Revelation 10, 7, what we just read. He said it is not stated that the mystery of God shall be finished when the seventh angel begins to sound. That's not what it said. Remember, it said the mystery of God should be finished, right? So look at what it says. It says, for this would be, this would denote instantaneous completion. He goes on. But it is said in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound, etc. This shows beyond dispute that a period of time is devoted to this work. The days of this prophecy are prophetic days, i.e. years, as are those of the fifth and sixth angels in Revelation 9. These years, which are devoted to this finishing of human probation, begin with the sounding of the seventh angel. They are the earliest years of his voice. So when you read Revelation 10, 7, it wasn't something that happened instantaneously. It was something that began and was going to spread over a period of time. It says in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. That indicates days, prophetically, years. So it was not something that was going to be instantaneous. It was something that was going to go over a period of years that there's going to be a sounding for the mystery of God to be finished. You understand? So this is what Christ wants. Christ is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. He wants to see the mystery of God finished because when that takes place, then the pain can stop. Why? Because an experience has taken place. What's the experience? It's called victory over sin. So then, here's the question. Our job right now is to point people to Christ in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and show people how to get there by faith. Is that correct? Yes. So that's our mission. That's our job. This is what we should be doing. This is what should be our focus right now. Now, the reason why this is important is because I want you to see some points here. Christ is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. I, I love that picture because it's a picture that just simply demonstrates in pictorial form what Christ is doing. He's in the most holy place. His mission is to bring us in union with him. He wants us to come where he is by faith. Our mission is to point people there. So now we've solved one problem. Victory over sin can only come through Christ. But you have to know where he is we understand where he is he is where he's in the most holy place and we need to get there is that right but brothers and sisters how do you get there
Hebrews 10. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, we're going to find out how to get there. And I think this is important. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, because we want to get there because we know that's where all the blessings are. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the Bible shows us how to get there. Look at what it says in Hebrews 10, and we're going to consider verse 19. Watch the text carefully. It's very, very clear. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the where? The holiest. That's another term for the most holy place. Having therefore, boldness, this term can be applied to the most holy place. So therefore, having the boldness, brethren, to enter the holiest. But how do you get there? It says, by the blood of Jesus. How do we get there? By the blood of Jesus. So somebody can't just simply get there because they want to get there. You can only get there by the blood of Jesus. Now, this makes sense because we read Revelation 12, which is how this whole message started. We skipped verse 11. But in Revelation 12, 11, it actually says, and they overcame him by the blood. Isn't that something? We're talking about overcoming, right? Victory over sin. And the only way it can happen is by the blood of Christ. Is that right? So therefore, there's no way that we can get into the most holy place except by the blood of Christ, of which enables us to Overcome. The reason this is important is because you're going to find that blood was all throughout the sanctuary. Did you know that? The blood of Christ was a very, very significant thing in the sanctuary services. Think about it. If you were to consider this, you would look at blood in the courtyard, according to Leviticus 1 and verse 5 and Exodus 27, 1 to 5. It was poured right down at the very bottom of the altar of sacrifice. So there was blood in the courtyard. Then, if you look at the holy place, there was blood in the holy place, according to Leviticus 4 and verse 7, because it was placed on the horns of the altar of incense. The altar of incense is in the holy place. But then, the blood in the most holy place, blood was in the most holy place before the mercy seat. So blood was in the most holy place. It's amazing because blood was all throughout every phase of the sanctuary. That's why it makes sense that the only way we can get into the sanctuary by faith is we have to come through the blood. Makes sense. Now, what is the significance of the blood? When you think about the blood, what is the significance of the blood of Christ anyhow? What's the significance of it? Well, if you study the Bible carefully, you would see that the blood, number one, represents the life. According to Leviticus 17, 11, the Bible says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when we think about the blood, it's something that gets us into the holy place. It's something that we can overcome. It's talking about the life of Christ. But also, it also indicates sacrifice. The Bible says, and he took the cup, Matthew 26, 27 and 28, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is what? Shed for many for the remission of sins. So when you think of the blood of Christ, you're not just simply thinking of his life, but you're especially thinking of his sacrifice. Are you following now, the reason why this is important is because we know there's something encased in the life of Christ that if it can.
can happen in yours and my life through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It can enable us to get into the most holy place by faith. How does this happen? Watch this quote. Desire of Ages 83, paragraph 4. We've read it often. Let's consider it. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplating of the li- contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene. But there was a focus, especially the what? Especially the closing ones. So I want you to catch this. So while we were to observe the entire life of Christ, there was an emphasis that the testimony of Christ wanted us to give serious zooming in on. It was none other than the what scenes? The closing scenes. Now, let's understand that. It says, as we thus dwell. You ever ever visited somebody? When you visit a place? When you visit a place, do you dwell there? Do you, dwell, do you dwell at a place you visit? I don't think so. I've never heard anybody visit somewhere and say, this is where I dwell. You're, vis- you're a visitor. That means that you're not there for a while. You're going to eventually leave. When you think of a dwelling place, you think of something that's permanent. You think of someplace where you live. I want you to think about this. We're told, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us. You know, see, some of us have been visiting the sacrifice of Christ, but we don't dwell on it. I want you to catch that. I want you to think on that. Some of us visit the sacrifice of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read about the cross. No big, big deal. So what? All right. All right. Let's get to that most holy place. Let's get to that deeper me. Tell me about the market of beasts. Tell me about the Pope. Tell me about Rome. Tell me about all the other stuff. Let's dwell on that. But the cross, I'll visit it. I'll visit it. But I'm not going to dwell there. We're being told the opposite, aren't we? We're being told, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, this is almost elementary. If you can look at your life and you can say, I know that my confidence in God is shaky. I know that my love for Christ is dying. I know that I am being less impressed by his spirit. It is clear you are not dwelling upon his great sacrifice for us. I like considering verses. I like considering quotes. Don't just read them. If there's somebody in this room and you can honestly say, I can see in my life, my confidence in the Lord is not constant. I'm questioning him a lot. I'm getting to the point that I'm even asking him so much questions, I'm wondering if he even exists to even answer my questions. If you're getting to that place, that's dangerous. There are some of us, our love is not being made more alive, our love is going out. Listen to me, saints. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from my heart because I ain't got no time to play no games. Brothers and sisters, we know, I taught this in the class all week, Seventh-day Adventists, we are phenomenal for externals. We are so good for externals. We know how to put on the happy Sabbath face. We know how to go ahead and wear the right suit, wear the right dress, and eat the right food, and do a lot of that external stuff. But there's some warfares going on in our hearts right now that some of us are two steps from turning our back on God and his truth. Christ is trying to save us from that. And he can't save you as long as you and I act. We have to be willing to say, Lord, my confidence in you is waning. My love for you is dying. 
The impressions of your spirit do not touch me like they used to. I can listen to some of the most powerful and present truth statements and read it myself. And my heart is not even moved as much anymore. And when you're in that place, you are in more of a 911 state than you know. But God said, there goes the solution all along. Dwell. Don't visit. Dwell upon the one who made this incredible sacrifice for you. Spend time thinking about it, contemplating it, praying about it, and saying, Lord, how do I make this my own? This is what Christ wants. He wants to protect us from falling into the trap that a lot of people, I've met so many present truth preachers that will stand on the pulpit and be like, the Bible says, and they preach in the word of God, and literally they will call me and say, man, I'm beginning to wonder if God even hears me. Getting ready to leave the faith. Getting ready to turn away. I have I've gone through this so many times, brothers and sisters. Went to one school. This school, please, these people, every time it was time for prayer, everybody went to their knees and prayed. Everybody always kneel in prayer. There was nothing of the food that they served at that school that you ever had to ask a question about. You didn't have to say, is there chocolate in this? Is there eggs or milk? In this? You didn't have to ask any of that. Everything was health reform. Girls were wearing their nice, long, flowing skirts. The brothers were wearing their nice suits or they were well-dressed, well-groomed. They had deep Bible classes. I sat in some of their Bible classes and listened to them preach the word. And I mean, when you looked at this school, you said, man, here goes the remnant. And I preached a sermon that Friday night. We preached the message on righteousness by faith. And when we finished that sermon, I said, how many of you would like for me to stand on the side here? And I'll be happy to pray with you. And as I decided to do that, there were so many people that stayed by, staff and students. And do you know that over 90% of the staff and student said the same thing when we came together for prayer? And you know what they said? They said, I don't know God. Brothers, since it was a lesson book for me, I will never forget. They said, I don't know God. I don't know if he really listens to me. I don't even know if he's still real. I've seen some of the students from that school today and they're participating in other ministries and they look, act and think and behave like the world. Turned away from Jesus. This is real warfare, brothers and sisters. There are some of us that we are not dwelling. And as a result of that, we are falling into some death traps by Satan and he is seeking to wipe us out. And this is why it says he will more. Or rather, our confidence in him will more, be more constant. Our love will be quickened and we shall be more deeply imbued with the spirit if we dwell upon that great sacrifice. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation. Where? At the foot of the cross. There is something about Calvary. There's something about Calvary that has a way of reaching the heart. Like nothing else can. It is the highest magnification of the love of God. It is the highest magnification of the overall goal of the life of Christ. No wonder the prophet says, focus on the closing scenes. And I think we need to do that. You see, the Bible tells us in Zechariah 12 and verse 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn as one mourns for his only son, and they shall be in bitterness as one who is in bitterness for his firstborn. God says the more that they look upon me whom they have pierced is the more that a mourning, a sorrow for sin, 
selfishness, sin, evil deeds will be removed from our hearts. God says, I'll do it. God says, I have power to do it. But you got to look and live. That's amazing. Sabbath school, look and live. Health nugget, look and live. Sermon, look and live. God is trying to get across to his people. Look and live. Then he goes on. The Bible says in Habakkuk 3 and 4, it says he had bright beams coming out of his side. And there was the hiding of his power. Isn't that what we need? Wasn't that our scripture reading? Our scripture reading was, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. But I challenge any of you. Next time you read Romans 1.16, you just write next to your Bible, just write 1 Corinthians 1, and you write verse 17 and 18. And then you write verse 24. I just want you to do that next time. And what you'll see is that if you look at Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But then when you look at Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, it says for the gospel that was preached, it was called the gospel of the cross of Calvary, the cross of Christ. And then he says for the cross of Christ, the preaching of the cross of Christ is the power of God. Then verse 24 says Christ, the power of God. So verse 17 and 18, preaching of the cross, the power of God. Verse 24, Christ, the power of God. First Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, I'm only going to preach Christ and him crucified. That's a lot of power. You get it? This is what Christ wanted us to always understand. You see, we're told that pierced side. Whence flowed the crimson stream that reconciled man to God, there is the Savior's glory. There the hiding of his power. And the tokens of his humiliation are his highest honor. Through the eternal ages, the wounds of Calvary will show forth his praise and declare his power. Great Controversy 674, paragraph 2. Now, if this was not enough, then one day I'm going through ministry of healing. And when I read this in ministry of healing, I said, Lord, all right, help me understand this. One day I'm reading ministry of healing 460 paragraph four. And it says, let the cross of Christ be the science of all education. You know, all of you have had education in some shape, form or size. The question is, was the cross of Christ the science behind it? Then not only that, it says, let the cross of Christ be made the science of all education, the center of all teaching and all study. How many of us do that? Really? How many of us make the cross of Christ the science of all my educational efforts? Then it is central to all my teachings and all my studies. Do you know it's possible to get up in the morning and have morning devotion, morning manna, and we don't see anything about the cross of Christ? It is possible to give sermon after sermon after sermon, and we can talk about a lot of things, but it may not be cross-centered. Now, if this was not enough, this is when it really got me. It says, let it be brought into the daily experience in practical life. How do you bring the cross of Christ into daily experience in practical life? You know, what, you know what practical life is? Grocery shopping. How do you bring the cross with you in grocery shopping? You know what's a daily experience in life? Going to work. 
dealing with a bunch of people that you nine times out of ten probably don't even like. How do you bring the cross of Christ with you in all these things? It says, if we did it, so will the Savior become to the youth a daily companion and friend. Every thought will be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So the Lord put me on a serious quest. And I'm just going to share a portion of this quest with you as we go through the last few phases of our study. I began to ask God, all right, cross-centered. That means I need to understand the cross because some people only understand the cross as a bloody mess. That's how some people understand the cross of Calvary. It's, it's, it's a day a bloody mess took place. And, and what I mean by that is there was a day a man named Jesus went on a cross and just got whipped and got a bunch of thorns put in his head and just got beat up real bad and bled all over the place and just hung on that cross for us. Somebody says, well, my uncle died in the Holocaust and they stripped his skin off of his body, finger by finger, toe by toe, limb by limb. So if Jesus is so special just because he chose to die for people and allowed himself to get bloody, 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 then why isn't my uncle a savior? What do you say to that Jewish man? If all that we can tell of the cross is that it was a day somebody just got bludgeoned really bad and died for a lot of people. Somebody says, well, my uncle went through the same thing. My father went through the same thing. A lot of people got bludgeoned and died for a lot of people. Is that the limit of the cross? I'd like to give you a homework assignment. We can't review it now, but I want you to study this. I want you to read volume two of the testimonies to the church. And I want you to read page 200 to 215. It's dealing with the cost of the cross. I think a lot of us are not familiar with really what happened on Calvary. Volume two of the testimonies to the church. Page 200 to 215. I want to encourage you to read that. If there's any visitors here that says, hey, I don't, I don't, what's this volume two stuff? You, you talk to whoever it is you know here at this church, and you say, don't you let me leave the sanctuary until I get volume two of the testimony to the church, page 200 to 215. I want you to read it. And I want you to read it slow, and I want you to read it very prayerfully. And my hope and my prayer is that you will realize the story of Calvary is more than the story of a Jewish man who just went through a bloody mess. There was much more at stake. Oh, yes. So when I look at this, then here's the question. What are practical lessons from the cross? How can we bring it into the daily experience? And you know why this is important? Because you're going to see these experiences in the closing scenes of the life of Christ are the experiences that we need to have to be prepared to go through the final crisis. So you're going to see that there's a tremendous parallel of what we're about to see when we look at the closing scenes of Christ's life and we look at this. Observe. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 7 something incredible. It says in Isaiah 53 and verse 7. In Isaiah the 53rd chapter and the 7th verse, the Bible says this, talking about Jesus as he was going to Calvary. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. It did not mean that his jaw did not go down or up. What it meant was he did not complain. It says he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. 
What is the lesson that we learn from that? Is that in the midst of crisis, he never complained. Did you know that that's a lesson from the cross? You see, you and I may not be put on a T-shaped tree, but you and I will definitely go through various crises of life. And when you go through crises of life, the question is, can you respond? As a testimony Sister Vondell said earlier, can you go through the crisis without complaining? You see, when you and I go through the crisis of life, when you go through those circumstances of life, cars breaking down, problems, plumbing breaks in the house, an individual, a husband leaves you, a wife dies. When we go through the various crises of life, can we go through it and be like Job and say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. No complaining. Do you know, brothers and sisters, the more we understand not to complain, even in the midst of crisis, what you don't realize is, is you're bringing the cross into your daily experience in practical life. Are you following lessons from the cross? Notice the next one. The next one is in Luke 22, 60 through 62. In Luke 22, 60 through 62, this may be a little harder for some of us, but here's another practical lesson from the cross in the closing scenes of Christ's life. In Luke 22, verses 60 to 62, I want you to notice what the Bible says as we consider it. Luke 22, 60 to 62. The Bible says, and Peter said, this is when Peter denied Christ already twice. It says, and Peter said, man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake the cock crew. Then it says, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, the problem here is that if we read this for face value, we might dare assume that Christ did what we would have done. You know, there's nothing, there's only one thing worse than when somebody does you wrong. It's when you told them he was going to do it before he did it. And here it is, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny me, etc. And here it is that when Peter finally did it, all the Bible says is that Jesus looked at him. Now, if we make Jesus too human like us on this point, we might think Jesus looked at him like we would look at him. You understand? Some people would think that when Jesus looked at him, Jesus was looking at him like, you see, I told you, you know, given this look like I told you you're going to do it, etc. But no, that's not the look that Jesus gave. Desire of Ages, page 712, tells it like this. It says, while the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, it says the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked Full upon his poor disciple. It says at the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master in that gentle countenance. He read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. Can you imagine that? When Peter said, I don't, and you don't understand, you can't, you can't just go by Luke 22, you got to read it in Matthew 26, because in Matthew 26, the third time he denied Christ, it says he did it with cursing and swearing. So Peter went all out to make it known, I do not know this man, I deny him, and right at the time he did it, it was like Jesus just looked at him. And when Jesus looked at him, 
It says there was no anger there. It says that he had pity and sorrow, but not just that. It goes on. It says the sight of that pale suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness. Peter did his master wrong and his master told him about it. And then he did it. And when he did it, Jesus looked at him with pity, sorrow, no anger, compassion. And it was as if he was saying, I forgive you. And it was no fake forgiveness. It was real. What's the lesson we learned there, brothers and sisters? He forgave Peter's denial with a look of love. We must learn to be forgiving to people even before they confess their sins. In other words, I should already be in a state ready to forgive you. Some of us are mean, some of us are mad, and some of us are ungodly, and we will treat people a certain way until they apologize. You're not learning the lesson from the cross. Husbands and wives especially do this to each other. Jesus was already saying, look, you, you didn't even confess your sin yet, son. But he says, but when you do, I want you to know my forgiveness is already prepared for you. This is how much look of love that Christ had. And you know a look, brothers and sisters. My wife and I, I'm telling you, we, we, we are the best of friends. And here it is when, when I walk in the house, my wife has a way she can just look at me. Hey, honey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. What's wrong? <laughs> Even when I try to act it out. What's wrong? Something's wrong. That's what happens when people know each other. You can see through the acting. Christ wanted to make sure, Peter, I don't want you to see anything else but what I had for you before you did this. Are we like that with each other? Husbands and wives, are we like that? Don't answer. But that's what Christ calls us to be. Parents, are you like that with your children? Siblings, are you like that with each other? And here we go. Church members, are you like that with each other? You understand, saints? We're talking about real preparation for the final crisis. I believe what's happening in heaven right now, you know, we say it's an investigative judgment. I have another word for it. You want to you know what I believe is happening right now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? I call it cross-examination. Christ is literally looking at you. He's looking at me. And he's saying, have they learned the lesson yet? Can I see Calvary being demonstrated in their lives? Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty of the Most High. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this. What do we learn from Hebrews 12 and verse 2? We learn in the midst of unwanted duty, the greater good caused him to yield. Do you know that you can take this principle into homeschooling? You can take this principle into work. You know, at work, sometimes there's duties you're called to do. You don't want to do it. 
Sometimes in homeschooling, there's an assignment mother or father may give, and you don't want to do it. But for the greater good that will come by doing that thing you don't feel like doing and surrendering the will and saying, not my will, but God's will be done. The right thing be done. It's a practical way of bringing Calvary into homeschooling. It's a practical way of bringing Calvary into business transactions. It's a practical way of bringing Calvary into the home. In the midst of unwanted duty, the greater cause motivates you to do it anyhow. These are all lessons that God wanted us to learn from the cross. It is when these things are understood that we can see, again, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit because now we're saying, Lord, this is what you want me to experience. As I look at those closing scenes of your life, as I'm dwelling upon the great sacrifice you have made for me, you're teaching me how to live like you lived even in the closing scenes of your life, and this is how I'm to live in the closing scenes of this earth's history. This is what Christ always wanted. Always wanted. And this is why there's a connection between the cross and the most holy place. It's in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary right now that we saw already there's blood in there. And that blood doesn't just represent life, it especially represents sacrifice. The cross of Calvary, the light of the cross is reflected from the most holy place. How do we know? Because Great Controversy 489 spells it out beautifully. It says the intercession of Christ in man's behalf. In the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. It says by his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must by faith enter within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered there. That's talking about within the veil. That's talking about the most holy place. There, the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected the light of the cross is in the most holy place. It goes on to show there we may gain a clearer insight into the mysteries of redemption. The salvation of man is accomplished at an infinite expense to heaven. The sacrifice made is equal to the broadest demands of the broken law of God. Jesus has opened the way to the father's throne and through his mediation, the sincere desire of all who come to him in faith may be presented before God. Is a connection between the cross and the most holy place. If you find that your walk with God is waning, if you're finding that you are getting weaker, the impressions of God's spirit are getting weaker, your interests and your desires are getting weaker, God says dwell a little bit more upon that great sacrifice. Pay attention to it. Ask God to open your eyes and help you to behold wondrous things out of his law. We started our sermon by showing that sin separates us from God. But now we've studied enough that I believe that we can see the way that we can get back to God. And it's a better and more faithful understanding of Calvary. Don't get away from it. I say this because there are some people in quote unquote present truth that will try to make you and I think that the cross is behind us and the most holy place is before us. But we have studied. We see no the blood was in courtyard. The blood was in holy place. The blood is in most holy place. The cross is never removed out of the picture. And how much the more seeing that is central to the very power that we need 
that we can finally have the experience of victory over sin. And so it is that the Bible closes by simply saying, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. And if you realize that, you know what? I have not dwelt upon the great sacrifice. It has not been my focus, perhaps as of late. Maybe you started there, but maybe somehow you lost your way and you're finding that your religion is getting dry, it's getting weak, it's getting waning, it's becoming more ceremonial. It's kind of the thing that I do, but it's not necessarily something that moves your heart. Something that causes you to desire Christ more and still more. The Bible declares that they overcame by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives unto the death. If you can look in your own heart, you can say, you know what? I have not made the cross the science of all my education. I have not made it the center of all my teaching and all my study. I have not been deliberate in seeing how I can bring it into my daily experience and practical life. But by the grace of God from this day forward, I avail myself under the teaching of God's spirit to know how to make this real for me. That I can finally enter within the holiest, which is by the blood of Jesus Christ. If that is your decision and you recognize that about yourself and you're saying, Lord, I avail myself, not my will thine be done. Then please stand to your feet with me as we have a word of prayer together. And I believe the Lord will do something special for us. And I know that he will bring drastic and powerful changes in our lives. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have spoken to our hearts. Truly, we have been blessed today because you have helped us to see a more focused point of our dwelling and our need for thee. Please, Lord, show us how to make the cross of Christ the science of all of our education, the center of all of our teaching and study. Show us how to bring its principles into our daily experience and practical life. And may it truly cause a transforming effect in our lives that we will see how we can truly enter within the holiest, even by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is our safety. And Lord, I pray that this experience would keep us from falling. And ultimately, we will be presented faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. Keep us faithful unto this end, we ask, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.